Oh Lord God, we thank you that you have come, that we might have life in you, that you're a God who comes to speak. And you want to speak to us here tonight as we gather around your word together as well. So we just pray for these moments together, Lord, that uh, we would have open hearts, that we would be responsive to all that you're saying to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It is uh, my privilege to introduce our speaker tonight. We are blessed to have Pastor Jeff Vines with us all the way from Christchurch of the Valley in California. Hold your applause for a minute. Jeff, if you want to come on up here with me, some of his team are actually here with us from Christchurch of the Valley. We are blessed to have Clive here with us, who is the Managing Director of Today with Jeff Vines. He is up the back there. Give him a bit of a welcome up the back, hiding up the back, taking it all in. We have Pastor Dale here as well from Jeff's Church. You want to give him a big welcome as well here tonight. Great to have you here, Dale, sharing with us. And we have Pastor Steve and Christy, who are sort of homegrown from here. So give these guys a big welcome. Great to have you guys with us. For those of you who don't know Jeff, Jeff uh, is the lead pastor of Christ Church of the Valley there in California, thriving ministry. He has served as a missionary, written a number of books, is a sought-after speaker. Jeff, we are so grateful for you giving your time to come and share here with us tonight. And I would love it now if you would give Pastor Jeff a really big, warm Bridgman welcome tonight. Well, it's, uh, it's fantastic to be back in Australia. Um, we love coming down here. My wife and I come down probably a couple times a year. And, uh, you know, if we lived in New Zealand for 10 years, 10 years. And as you know, Kiwis really need the gospel. And uh, so do the Aussies, though. But the, the most difficult thing about visiting Australia and New Zealand is when I go to the Brisbane airport and I head back to Los Angeles, I know it's going to be at least a year before I have another decent cup of coffee. Now, if you've ever traveled to the U.S., you know what I'm talking about. You cannot, you guys get to enjoy flat whites and lattes and cappuccinos. I have to go back to Starbucks. Have you ever had a Starbucks? So it's the great American lie. We burn coffee beans, we make it quick, and Americans think that's how coffee's supposed to be made. And it's only when they travel overseas that they realize, wow, what, we've been drinking dishwater for most of our lives. Uh, so we were uh, at, uh, on Friday night, we were at a, a function at Vision Radio. We were helping them open, the, open their uh, new studios that I think launches. Soft launch last Friday, hard launch happens I think in May or June. Uh, Saturday night, we were over at Highway on the Gold Coast, so some friends of mine there. And then this morning over at uh, Gateway Baptist, uh, on the other side of Brisbane, and now here we are. We're here because uh, we've heard a lot about your church, and we know that this is a prevailing church that's making a huge impact in its community. And I want you to know, especially the pastors who are pastoring here, having served and lived in New Zealand for 10 years and planting the church, I know that Americans have no idea how hard it is to do what you've done here. It is so difficult, and yet look what's happened. God has used you in a, in a tremendous way. Your reputation is spreading far and wide, and I just want you to know if you're part of this church, man, you're blessed to be part of this church. You've got a great pastor, great leaders, great teachers, great worship. Not everybody has access to that, and I hope that you have a heart of gratitude for that because you're going to need it. You're going to need it because most, most people have no idea that as you get older, one of the difficult things about life is unfulfilled expectations. 
Very few times does your life end up turning out the way you think it's going to. In fact, most of us, when we first come to Jesus, here's what we're doing. We want to be saved, want to get right with God, but there's a part of you that hopes that you can get God on board with your plan for your life. Your life becomes a journey whereby you're trying to get God on board with your life and he's trying to get you on board with his. So your life becomes a tension. So much so that when your life doesn't go the way you think it was, or maybe you did everything right in your marriage and it didn't turn out the way you hoped it would. Maybe you did everything right in spacing temptations, maybe at school, university, whatever it is, you try to do everything right, but you end up like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you end up in the fire anyway. And at that point in your life, the way you respond is going to determine so many things. It's going to determine the degree to which God can use you. It's going to determine how much you can grow in your faith and trust in God even when things don't turn out the way you'd plan. And so there are situations that will arise in your life that are really tests. The Bible tells you it's a test of authenticity. You're going to discover who you really are. Whether or not you came to Christ because you love him, you want to serve him, and he is everything to you, or rather, you've come to Christ, you appreciate his salvation, but really you're hoping that somehow, now think about this, somehow that God will help you get your real idols, the things that you really trust. Maybe if you can have enough money, God will help you get that, or the job, or the promotion, or maybe get the girl, or the guy. Or that one thing you think you can't live without. And so when you don't get that thing you think you can't live without, at that moment, we're going to really find out who you are in the manner in which you respond. Now, when I, when I talk about this issue, because it's very real to me, I like to go to an Old Testament narrative where I can see someone who lived pretty much like I did, see how they respond, and then see how God worked in their lives to bring them to where he wanted them to be. No better story, no better narrative than in the book of Genesis, chapter 29, when we meet Jacob. Jacob grows up in a time of primogeniture. Primogeniture is firstborn gets everything. So if you're the firstborn, you get two-thirds of the family inheritance, and it's up to you to expand the family name and the family land. Now, when I was a little boy, I remember our Sunday school teacher, uh, those of you who are my age, 35, uh, those of you who are my age, 55, some of you will remember, I grew up in the Baptist church, you'll remember the Sunday school teacher getting out the flannel board. You remember that thing? And they will post things. They'll post Esau and Jacob, and they'll just stick them right there. And in some of those photos, you'll remember that as Esau is being born, you've got Jacob grabbing his heel to try to pull him back into the womb. Now, I thought that was a cool story, but nobody told me what was really going on. Well, Jacob knows that if Esau gets out first... He's the firstborn, which means he's going to get everything. If you're the second, third, fourth, fifth born, it means that you're just another hand, another worker in the field. So in a way, Jacob is saying, get back in here, you little brat. I want to be the firstborn. Jacob thinks that if he can be the firstborn, his life will have meaning and purpose. Everything will be okay. The saddest verse in this narrative is in Genesis 29, and we're told, or, uh, sorry, 25, uh, verse 28, that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, 
when you don't have the love of a father, and this is what the verse is trying to tell us, Isaac had a favorite, and his favorite was Esau. Esau was hairy, and he smelled like the outdoors because he spent all of his time with his father outside. The Bible tells us Jacob has smooth skin, and he spends all of his time in the tent with his mother, learning how to cook and all those things. He is her favorite. So much so that she wants Jacob to get the firstborn blessing. Now, this firstborn blessing, it was a contract. It was kind of a commitment between God and the firstborn. So whoever gets it, it matters. You and I don't understand that completely. And it's not that God supported primogeniture. It's more like he tolerated it. Nevertheless, the firstborn blessing was a blessing that you received from God, and it mattered. And so Rebecca, Jacob's mother, says, we're going we're gonna to get this blessing. I'm going to help you steal this from your father Isaac. Isaac is getting old. He's losing his eyesight. Can't see as well. So she goes out and gets some goat skin and puts it on Jacob to make him feel like his brother Esau, all hairy. And I don't know what she does. Maybe she goes down to the local Target or something and buys some outdoor perfume and spills it all over Jacob so that he smells like the outdoor and he feels like the outdoor. He goes into the tent. Isaac thinks he's giving the blessing to his son Esau when in fact he ends up giving it to Jacob. When Jacob receives it, he thinks, oh man, this is going to make my life complete. This is going to make my life so good. But what happens? His life actually starts to go from bad to worse. Now he's broken the heart of his father. His father's very angry. His brother Esau's chasing him and wants to kill him. And his mother, Rebecca, the only woman that's ever really loved him, he's never going to see her again because he now is going to have to run for his life. The Bible tells us that Jacob runs to Uncle Laban. He's going to work for Rebecca's brother, his uncle. And we pick up the story when Laban comes to Jacob and says, Jacob, you know, you've been working for me for a while. And Jacob's uh, herding cattle and sheep. It's long hours with very little pay. Uncle Laban says, Jacob, just because we're related doesn't mean you should work for free. And then here's what the Bible says. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Wow. Is any woman really worth seven years of hard labor? <laughs> seven years. Now, what's really interesting here, the normal price a suitor paid uh, for a bride was somewhere around in the time of Jacob, 40 shekels. If you do the math, Jacob's job during this phase uh, probably earns 1.5 to 2 shekels per month. So if you add it up, Jacob is not offering double or even triple. He's offering quadruple the going rate for a bride. And he's doing it without haggling in a culture that is built on haggling. So he says to Uncle Laban, I'll tell you what my wages can be. I'll work for you seven years if you give me that girl. The Bible tells us in verse 17 that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, look, guys, I'm just telling you the Bible story, so don't shoot the messenger. I want to tell you a few things about this text, but please understand I'm just communicating the story. I didn't make this up. I'm just telling you the story. And the reality is the Bible describes Rachel in terms of, of sexual attractiveness. The two words, form and appearance, have to do with curves and the radiance of the face. The Bible is trying to tell you that when it comes to having a great body and a great face, Rachel's got both. And so when Jacob sees her, this is in the Bible, 
I can't make this stuff up. Jacob sees this beautiful girl and he's smitten. He's over the moon. And he goes and he says, Uncle Laban, I got to have her. I have to have this girl. In Genesis 29 verse 11, we're told that Jacob on occasion actually got to kiss Rachel. And the Bible says when he did, he lifted his voice and wept. Now, young girls, when is the last time your boyfriend kissed you and just started crying? <laughs> and, and those of you who have been married for a long time, when is the last time your wife or wives, your husband kissed you and it's just so overwhelmed with your wonder and beauty that just began to weep. That's how bad Jacob has it. And in verse 20 of chapter 29, the Bible tells us that's what Jacob did. He served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. He loved her so much. He was so enamored with her. Seven years, that's nothing. I worked seven years. Now, before you say, wow, some of you girls, man, I, that's all I want in life, a man like that man who will weep when he kisses me and will do hard labor. And, and to him, it seems but just a few days, that's the man I want. No, it's not. This is not the kind of love that is deep and intimate. This is not about taking long walks on the beach and talking about the emotional state of the relationship. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Jeff? Because when the engagement is done in chapter 29, verse 21, Jacob goes to Uncle Laban and says, give me your daughter, Rachel, that I might sleep with her. Wow. Hebrew scholars have struggled with this for years because it's utterly outrageous. It's beyond what is customary. It's, it's brash. It's crass. It's offensive. I, I can't imagine me going to my father-in-law before he was my father-in-law after I dated my wife Robin for seven years and saying to him, okay, give her up. I want to sleep with her. It's not how you approach your father-in-law, just in case you don't know that. And it's very humorous watching scholars try to deal with this. And the only scholar that's made any sense to me in this passage is a guy by the name of Robert Alter. And he says, the explanation is really simple. He is so overwhelmed, spiritually, emotionally, sexually overwhelmed with longing for Rachel. He'll do anything to get her, and here's why. Because this is the manner in which he is dealing with the disappointments in his life. The feelings of failure, the feelings of abandonment, insignificance, the unworthiness of his life. He's saying, you know what? I'm out here in the wilderness. I've been rejected by my father. My brother wants to kill me. I'll never see my mother, the only woman who's ever loved me, again. But you know, here's this beautiful girl, and if I can just have sex with her, my life will be complete. If I can just get the girl, my life will have meaning and significance, and the hole in my heart that I feel would be gone if I could just get the woman. Now, can I just pause just for a moment? Aren't you glad we don't live in such an archaic culture that we would say sleeping with a beautiful woman would give us meaning and significance? That was sarcasm. <laughs> Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death. He's a secular atheist, doesn't have a belief in God. But he says that we in the West, now he says the West, we in the West are not willing to admit what the debunking of God, unbelief in God, has done to the human soul, so much so that now there's a void that we're trying to fill, and the way that the West is trying to fill it, and to fill it, is through the romantic solution by thinking that if we go out and find that girl or that guy and get married, we'll be happy forevermore and we'll have no problems. The only people who think that when you get married, you have no more problems are those who've never been married. 
Sometimes you get new problems. He says, it's the belief that if we can find that one true love, all of our feelings of insignificance, purposelessness, and meaninglessness will dissipate. So that people with an inner emptiness, they say, if I could just find my soulmate, the abuse that I suffered growing up from my parents, the sibling abuse where I wasn't treated equally to the rest of my siblings, the feelings of rejection and nobodiness and the sense of failure and the overwhelming sense of disappointment, the favoritism, all of these things somehow will dissipate if I can just find my savior. And my savior in this point is the romantic solution. Rachel has become Jacob's savior. He thinks she will rescue him, save him, redeem him. Now just keep that over to the side for a moment because while Jacob is going through this kind of experience, guess what? As much as a con man and a deceiver as Jacob is, he's met his match in Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban's even worse. So as soon as Uncle Laban hears Jacob say, I will work for Rachel seven years, Laban's evil mind goes to work. Do you know why? Now remember, I'm just telling you the story because he has an ugly daughter he's trying to unload. Leah's not beautiful. And so Uncle Laban says, man, this guy's desperate. There's got to be a way I can unload Leah on him instead of Rachel. Rachel's going to have no trouble finding a husband. Now, you remember, we're talking about a time when it's everything to get married and have children. That's your significance in the Old Testament culture. Again, I didn't say it was right or that God condoned it. It is what it is, and the history tells us. So Laban's thinking this, here's a guy who'll do anything to get the girl, he's not negotiating, he's desperate, he's over the top, he's out of his mind, he's not thinking clearly, and so notice, notice how Laban responds to Jacob's offer. In Genesis 29, 9, he says, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. That's a sales pitch. He makes an oblique, positive statement, but he never promises actually that he's going to give Rachel to Jacob. He just says, well, it is better that I give her to somebody else, to another man, or give her to you, perhaps, than somebody else. But he never, he never makes the commitment or the promise. But Jacob is so over the moon about Rachel, he hears what he wants to hear. He works seven years, and after the seven years, he comes to Uncle Laban and says, give me my wife. Now, you don't have to have a lot of archaeological or historical, philosophical knowledge or understanding to know what's going to happen next. This is where the story gets really good, isn't it? Because there's the wedding day. And during the wedding day, where Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel, the bride is heavily veiled all day. He's never going to see her. She's totally covered until the consummation of the marriage at night. And so there's a big feast. Starts in the village of the bride. They blow the shofar. They ride the big white horse. There's the wedding party. They feast all day. They drink a lot of wine. A lot of food and a lot of wine. During all these festivities, the bride is heavily veiled. And then we come to evening. Now we're talking about a culture that has no electricity. And Leah is put into the tent instead of Rachel by Uncle Laban. Jacob has had a lot of wine and a lot of food. He goes in thinking that it's Rachel. And he says, oh, Rachel only to wake up the next morning and discover that it's Leah. He's so angry that he runs directly to Uncle Laban and said, why did you do this? You knew that I was working for Rachel, and now I've consummated the marriage and my drunkenness, and now I have a wife that I didn't want. And Uncle Laban looks to Jacob, 
and says, well, it's not our custom in these parts to put the younger before the older. And the Bible says as soon as Jacob heard that, it's like a spear went through his conscience and exploded because he realized that Uncle Laban did to him exactly what he did to his father. Isaac reaches out in the dark thinking that he's touching Esau. Instead, it's Jacob. Jacob reaches out in the dark thinking he's with Rachel. He's with Leah. So he doesn't even argue. He just goes away and he ends up working another seven years. In the meantime, he's married to Leah. Now, just let me take a pause here for a moment. Have you ever wondered how did... Laban get Leah to go into the tent. Leah knew that Jacob was in love with Rachel, her sister. How do you do that? And I'm uh, I'm meandering a little bit here, but I I imagine that, and again, this is just the narrative, I imagine Uncle Laban saying, Leah, you better get in that tent because you're just not attractive. And if you don't get in that tent, Probably never going to have a husband, not going to have kids. So this is your chance. Get in there. Now that says something about Leah that she's willing to go. Because we, we discover that Leah is doing to Jacob the same thing Jacob is doing to Rachel. Leah thinks Jacob is going to be her savior in the same way that Jacob thinks Rachel is going to be his. And so the Bible tells us in verse 17 that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and very beautiful. What does it mean to have weak eyes? Does it mean that Leah was cross-eyed? You know, she has weak eyes. What, What is it? Well, the Hebrew term is a reference to humility. Again, a very difficult term. But you know, when a when a girl is confident, she tends to look straight ahead and look you in the eye when you're talking to her. When a girl is not confident, and has not received the love that she's meant to receive from her father, which in this case, Leah has not received the love from her father Laban, as she should, then you tend to look down and away. And so it has to do with confidence and humility. So when we're talking about Leah's eyes were weak, it's not that Rachel could see a long way off, but Leah could only see close up. It means that Leah didn't have eyes that would compel you or draw you in. She had a sense of of, uh, of shame almost because of the life that she was living. And think about it for a moment. How would you like to have a sister that's so stunning and beautiful that every time a guy comes around, they just are mesmerized, fall deeply in love, and they kiss her and they cry. And here you are, knowing that your father thinks that you're the ugly duckling of the family and is trying to unload you on somebody that doesn't even want you. But the whole point of the narrative, and it took me a long time to see this, is that Leah is just like Jacob. She's also trying to deal with the hole in her heart. And how is she coping? What does she do in the story? You think about this. Things haven't changed that much because she desperately wants Jacob to love her. She thinks if Jacob will just love me and I can give him children, then my life will have meaning and purpose. She's wanting Jacob to save her in the same way Jacob wants Rachel to save him. So what does she start doing in the text? She she starts to have children. Aren't you glad we don't live in such an archaic society where a woman would get pregnant just to keep a man? That's what she does. And she starts naming her sons in a way that would get the attention of Jacob. She has Reuben, which means to see. Maybe now I will be visible to my husband. Then she has a second son, Simeon, which means to hear. Maybe now my husband will listen to me and hear my cry for love. And then she has a son named Levi, which means to attach. Maybe my husband will finally love me. Maybe he will finally attach himself to me and give himself to me as a husband should to his wife. 
That's how she's handling the emptiness in her heart, the hole in her life. If only this man will love me. She has a pseudo-savior, but she's in hell, man, because no man can live up to that kind of life. Now, let me pause just for a second. In every part of your life, no matter what age you are, and, and those of you who are young and you feel like you're just starting out, you need to hear this because if, you're, if your parents and the older people could get you in a room and just talk to you and you would actually listen, this is what they would tell you. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to have highs and lows. You're going to have great joys in your life of travel and of marriage and of intimacy and relationships and experiences in nature. Yes, you're going to have those, but seldom will your life turn out the way you think it should. And there are going to be seasons in your life where you go on your knees and you beg God to give you that thing you think you can't live without. The promotion at work. Enough money in the bank to live in the neighborhood that you really want to live in. In effect, what you end up doing is spending most of your life trying to get God to give you what you think you can't live without. And you get disappointed and you're frustrated with God. But in all of your life, in every aspect of your life, there's always going to be a ground note running of cosmic disappointment. And that's why in the West, we're so depressed. Think about it. We are healthier than our parents were. We have more means than our parents did. We have a greater sense of liberty in being able to travel, but suicide rate is on the rise in the West. <laughs> we're killing ourselves and we have everything our parents thought that if they had, they'd be happy. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you who's even worse at this. And I want to speak to those of you who are in pastoral ministry, those of you who are on this stage, those of you playing instruments, those of you leading worship, those of you who are preaching and teaching. We stand up here and we tell our congregations not to base their significance on how much money they make or their job and not allow the world to give them a sense of importance. While what we're doing at the same time is our significance comes from how big our church is, how many people are getting saved, how many books we've written, and how many people know us. And God is going to have to do some massive work in you, and he will. For me, it was anxiety, severe anxiety disorder for two and a half years where I couldn't even leave my house that brought me to the end of myself to realize that I take myself far too seriously. And that's why we're so anxious. That's why you're so depressed. Because you've got little pseudo-saviors, little idols. You think if you serve and obey and trust those things, they'll give you everything that you need. But your soul that's eternal knows that it's attached to something that is temporary at best and disintegrates a little bit every day. And until you start to live your life for something that cannot be lost, a sense of eternality, until you really pursue Christ, and a relationship with him, and he is everything that you, you don't just say it, you actually mean it, that he's all you need to be happy. There will be cosmic disappointment in your life, and instead of serving God for his purposes, you will attempt to use him for yours. The beauty of that is God still loves you, but there's something he has to do. He's got to strip you of all your idols because he loves you. You see, the thing that God does is he either lets you get everything you want to show you how they can never deliver, 
or he strips them all away one by one until you realize Jesus is all you need, but you'll never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So in those times in your life when you lose something you think you can't live without, that's when you really find out who you are. You get mad at God because something doesn't turn out the way you think it should because you think you did everything right. <laughs> you think God is your personal butler to deliver everything you ask for so that when things go wrong, you start to walk away? Well, then that means your faith and trust in God is contingent on God behaving like you think he ought to. It also means that you think you know better than God how your life should be going. You don't. We are people of the cross, right? And being people of the cross means that it is possible for you to be in the worst place of your life and be in the center of the will of God at the same time. When was Jesus most centered in the will of the Father? When he was dying on the cross. Jesus loves you so much that he's entered into a divine romance with you. And that means he's going to strip you of the things you depend upon. The idols in your life that you think will save you until you recognize the only thing that will save you is Jesus. You are only as solid and durable as that in which or in whom you have placed your ultimate trust. Now let me describe it like this with one final illustration and then finish the story with Leah and then we're done. I know you play cricket in Australia. Yes, I'm an American who understands cricket. Well, I lived in Africa for 10 years, then I lived in New Zealand for 10 years. Yes, I know what an over is. I got it. I used to go to the, the, the cricket pitch uh-huh, in New Zealand to watch the Aussies and the Kiwis and the cricketers. And yes, I know that they bowl faster than the Americans throw a fastball. I got all that. <laughs> Love cricket. But I grew up playing baseball because I grew up not too far from Nashville, Tennessee. Thus the accent that never goes away. When I was a little boy, they start us out playing baseball when we're five years old. It is the American pastime. and Every little kid goes to play whether he wants to or not. And when you're not very good, they put you out in right field. And the reason they put you in right field is because no baseballs ever get there. So you can't mess up if the ball never comes to you. So they put me in right field. And I'm ADD still today. In fact, uh, I did a, a, per, a temperament personality test one time. And after it was over, the lady looked at me and said, how on earth can you sit at a desk for eight hours to study for a sermon? It just goes to show you, even when you're ADD, the Holy Spirit can do amazing things. And so I'm out in right field, and I decided I would start looking for four-leaf clovers. That seemed fun, but that doesn't last very long because you run out of four-leaf clovers. And I remember that my mom had told me, never stare at the sun. Don't stare at the sun. It's not good. But I was bored. So I tried something. Now, don't try this at home. I'm a professional. And I would look up, and you could actually do it with these lights. They're bright enough because I don't see you. I just see something out there. And you can look at that. If you, if you stare at the sun for 20 seconds, don't do it uh, longer than that because you'll cause irreparable damage. And you stare at the sun, and then you close your eyes really tight. The coolest thing happens. There's these beautiful little colored dots that just bounce around everywhere, blue and green and purple and pink and yellow. They're beautiful. They're just gorgeous. But the problem is that they're bouncing everywhere, and you can only see them in your peripheral vision. So you can't really focus on them because they're bouncing. But have no fear, 
I did this long enough to learn how to see them. And what you do is when you close your eyes, don't look directly at the dots. Fix your gaze on a fixed point in the background, something in the background beyond. And then when you do that, the little dots stabilize, come into full view, and you can see how beautiful they really are. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? (laughs) Your life is like that. You know why they call them selfies, don't you? Because they can't spell narcissism. (laughs) Yeah. As long as your focus, as long as the focus of your life is on you, your little dots will never stabilize. And your life will be headed in all different directions. But the day, when the day comes that you focus your vision on a fixed point in the background that is bigger than yourself, all the little dots in your life stabilize and you'll begin to see how beautiful life really is. The, you know who the hero of this narrative is? It's Leah. I didn't see this for years because you stop reading after Jacob. But then you go back to the narrative and you discover that Leah begins to pray. She knows that by making Jacob her pseudo-savior is never going to work. She's never going to get what she's looking for in anything that's temporary. And so she begins to pray. Scholars are enamored with this because she doesn't use the name Elohim, the typical more generic term for God. She prays Yahweh, which is an intimate word for God, which usually only the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, But she knows this name and she uses it as she prays and cries out to God. And the reason she does this is because she's getting to know God as she cries out in her pain. And along the way, she becomes so intimate with God that by the time she has her fourth kid, she has a breakthrough. In Genesis 29, 35, she has a child and she names him Judah, which means praise. And the Bible says, this time, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing children. There was no more need to have any more children. She took the deepest, most passionate desires of her heart, took them away from her husband, and put them onto the Lord. And only when you do that is your soul going to quieten And the depression and the anxiety and the frustration goes away because your soul has attached itself to something that loves it unconditionally, accepts it, receives it, gives it significance. And at that moment, you get a centralized joy. Now, you still have moments of sorrow, but for the Christ follower, joy is central, sorrow only peripheral. But for the person who doesn't know God, sorrow is central, joy only peripheral. There are moments of joy, but they live with an overarching sense of sorrow because second law of thermodynamics, we're dying, we're fading. And until you attach yourself to something that is eternal, you'll never know that centralized joy. And that which is eternal is Christ in you, the hope of glory, where you become a partaker of the divine nature where God comes to live in you and you see things you've never seen and you do things you've never done and you begin to feel things you've never felt before. But that only comes in submission and I pray for every young person in the room, don't go the way that so many of us adults have gone. Get this right now. 
Pursue things. Pursue your career. Go ahead. Pursue those things. That's fine. You got to make a living. But pursue Christ most of all. And all these other things will be added unto you. Father, I thank you and praise you for the truth of your word and how it speaks volumes into our lives. And I pray, I thank you for this church. I thank you for a church that, that has such a passion for people far from God that it's willing to move heaven and earth to help people far from God come near. I thank you for the testimony this church has into this community. I pray for her pastors and her leaders that they would always remember to continue on the path of building your kingdom, never their own. I pray for the pastors and leaders, worship leaders, all those on staff, that they would never allow their significance to come from the praise of people, but it would always come from the joy of knowing Christ, that they are accepted freely, and they are given grace and mercy that is so immeasurable they could never even hope or imagine it. And I pray that as we lead people far from God near to God, that they would see a Jesus who loves us like no other and who gives us everything for which we are searching and is the only entity big enough to fill the void in every soul. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to have an opportunity to respond to God's word to us tonight in worship now. In that powerful Leah's words, this time I will praise the Lord. As we respond in worship, this is an opportunity for us to say, Lord, I want, I want to make you number one. I want to make it all about you. He is the only one, the only one that can fulfill the deepest needs and longings of our heart. Jesus is all we need. And these moments like this, times like this, when we're together and we hear this word and the Spirit of God's been speaking to you, these are moments just to respond and say, God, I want to... I want to prioritize you. I want to seek you first in my life. There's so many distractions, so many things to pull us away from him. But tonight to say, Lord, I want to, I want to, I want to praise you. I want to honor you. I want to worship you. And so we're going to have an opportunity to do that now. So I'm going to invite you just to stand where you are. Let's jump on our feet as we come to worship. If tonight the Spirit of God has been speaking to you really specifically about this, you're saying, God, I know I... I just need to put you back number one in my life. I need to make you my number one focus. And I invite you, if you, God's just prompting you just to respond in this moment, just to come down the front and just worship him. But you're saying, this time, Lord, I'm going to praise you. Tonight, I just want to praise you in a special way. Respond to what you're saying to me. Just come, stand at the front, along the front here, just worship him as a marker of that moment. These are important moments. We mark and respond to what God is saying to us. Maybe there's something that's been distracting you, something that's been pulling you away, and you know that. It doesn't matter what age you are, younger, older, doesn't matter. This is for the whole journey. We need reminding of this. We need to refocus continually on Him. You can do that tonight. So let's respond together in worship to His Word to us. Let's worship Him tonight. Give Him all the praise that He deserves. The name above every other name. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank You, Lord, that You are our living hope. It is in you and you alone, Lord, that we find life and meaning and purpose and salvation and forgiveness and everything that we need. And so together, Lord, we respond individually and corporately as well, Lord. We, as your church, Lord, we want to declare again, Lord, that this, Lord, is your church. You are the head of this church, Lord. 
that this is all about one name, your name, Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, less of us, more of you. May the name of Jesus be lifted high. Not the name of any church or any person, Lord, but the name of Jesus be lifted high in this community, in this city, in this nation, in this world. That is our prayer. And that as we lift your name high, Lord, that all men, all women, all people would be drawn to you, we pray. This is our prayer, Lord. And so we hear your word to us again, Lord, and we want to declare this and affirm this again together as your people, and we pray with expectancy, Lord. All you want to do, all that you have done, Lord, all that you would have in store for us, Lord, may we not put our hands on your work, Lord. May we not touch what you are doing, great God, but instead listen to your voice, follow you humbly, we pray. This is our prayer as a people here, and as we do that, we are believing, even in this term, Lord, even this term ahead as we reach out for many more to come into your kingdom, many more to discover this good news, that there is an answer, that there is a hope, and it is found in you, Lord Jesus. And so we declare this, and we pray this, and we affirm this together. We pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. Can we put our hands together and thank Pastor Jeff and his team here for sharing with us. Thank you, brother, so much for sharing with us tonight. You can grab a seat where you are. If you'd like to be prayed for tonight, we'd love to pray for you. Ask God to bless you. If you don't yet know what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, we've got these Bible gift packs. We'd love to give this to you. The Alpha course we mentioned as well. But do come. Share with us again next week as well. God bless.